0: Welcome to What's Up Wednesday. In these short episodes, I will summarize a recent study or journal article related to obesity management and discuss how to incorporate this latest science into your clinical practice. And of course, I'll be sure to include links to the articles in the show notes. So let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of What's Up Wednesday. And today we will be discussing the newly released 2022 ASMBS, and IFSO Updated Guidelines on Indications for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. And this was published on October 22nd, 2022, online in the Journals of Surgery for Obesity and Related Diseases, or the uh, S.W.O.R.D.'s Journal, and Obesity Surgery. And the author is Dan Eisenberg et al., And so this is super important because these guidelines for the indications of metabolic and bariatric surgery have not been updated in over 30 years. So 1991 was the last time that the National Institutes of Health had guidelines for bariatric surgery, and they have not been updated since. So this is a big deal, which is why we want to talk about it today. So to give you a little bit of background, who are ASMBS and IFSO, right? So many of you might be familiar with ASMBS. That is the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. And then IFSO is the International Federation for the Surgery of Obesity and Metabolic Disorders. And this organization represents 72 national associations and societies throughout the world. And so these two organizations have come together to issue this new evidence-based clinical guidelines for the first time in 30 years. So we are going to go over some of the major updates to the 1991 National Institutes of Health Guidelines for Bariatric Surgery. So let's jump right in. First of all, metabolic and bariatric surgery is now recommended for individuals with a body mass index of greater than or equal to 35, regardless of the presence or absence or severity of comorbidities. Okay. So this is a big change because previous to this, uh, bariatric surgery was recommended for people with a BMI greater than equal to or greater than 40, or with a BMI equal to or greater than 35 with obesity related complications. So that is no longer the case. Okay. So anybody with a BMI Greater than or equal to 35 should be eligible for bariatric surgery. In addition to that, metabolic and bariatric sur- surgery should be considered for individuals with metabolic disease with a BMI of 30 to 34.9. Okay, so if anybody with metabolic disease, that threshold goes down even lower now to a BMI of 30, whereas previously that was a BMI of 35 or greater. In addition to that, BMI thresholds should be adjusted in people of the Asian population or South Asian population such that a BMI greater than or equal to 25 suggests clinical obesity as opposed to 30, which it is in individuals who are not of Asian or South Asian descent. And individuals with a BMI of greater than or equal to 27.5 of Asian descent, again, should be offered metabolic and bariatric surgery. In addition to that, the report shows that there are long-term results of metabolic and bariatric surgery that consistently demonstrate safety and efficacy. So they go into that in the report as well. In addition to that, they recommend that appropriately selected children and adolescents should be considered for metabolic and bariatric surgery. And this was also a change because in 1991, the statement recommended against surgery in children and adolescents, even with a BMI over 40, because at that time it had not been studied sufficiently. And it's really important because these consensus statements that were produced in 1991 by the NIH have been used by healthcare providers, hospitals, and insurance providers as a standard for selection criteria for bariatric surgery. And so this is really important because it is applied basically universally. So these standards are changing. The guidelines go on to say that bariatric surgery should be considered starting at a BMI of 30 for people who do not achieve substantial or durable weight loss or obesity disease-related improvement using non-surgical methods, even in people without metabolic disease. So again, they recommend that patients with a BMI 30 to 35, so that class one obesity, if they don't have obesity-related complications, should attempt non-surgical or medical obesity treatment first. But if they do not achieve sustained, durable, and sufficient weight reduction with medical treatment, they should be offered metabolic and bariatric surgery as well. Some other things they went into more detail on is age. So they talked about the extremes of age, and they discussed that frailty rather than age alone is independently associated with higher rates of postoperative complications following metabolic and bariatric surgery. And so that really we should be assessing frailty and not just age. And when considering metabolic and bariatric surgery in older patients, the risk of surgery should be evaluated against the risk, um, the morbidity risk of obesity and obesity related diseases. They go on to say that there is no evidence to support an age limit on patients seeking metabolic and bariatric surgery, but careful selection criteria that includes assessment of frailty is recommended. And they. Uh, have show studies that even patients in their 70 s have been very successful with metabolic and bariatric surgery and that it can be performed safely. But again, uh, frailty especially needs to be assessed. Then when they talk about the the other end of the spectrum, the younger are pediatric patients, they go on to say that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the ASMBS, recommend consideration of metabolic and bariatric surgery in children and adolescents with a BMI greater than the 120th percentile of the 95th percentile. So that would be class 2 obesity in children. And major comorbidity or a BMI greater than the 140th percentile of the 95th percentile. So that would be class Three obesity if they do not have a major weight-related comorbidity. In addition to that, they say that metabolic and bariatric surgery does not negatively impact pubertal development or linear growth. Therefore, a specific tanner stage and bone age should not be considered a requirement for surgery. And they'd also note that increasingly syndromic obesity, developmental delay, autism spectrum, or history of trauma is not considered a contraindication to metabolic and bariatric surgery in adolescence and simply requires further evaluation next they talk about bariatric and metabolic surgery as a bridge to other treatments so they talk about several specific conditions where metabolic and bariatric surgery can be a bridge to other treatment options So they talk about joint arthroplasty and they say that there are reports and science to suggest that metabolic and bariatric surgery may be effective as a bridge to total joint arthroplasty in individuals with class two or class three obesity when performed at least two years or greater prior to joint surgery. Okay, because we know that with joint arthroplasty, a lot of times patients need to be below a certain BMI, often uh, below a BMI of 40, in order to have those joint replacements. So metabolic and bariatric surgery can be a bridge to that if somebody does have higher BMIs. Also, they talk about abdominal wall hernia repair. So in patients with severe obesity and abdominal wall hernia repair or hernias requiring elective repair, metabolic and bariatric surgery should be considered first to induce significant weight reduction and consequently reduce the rate of complications and also also hernia recurrence associated with hernia repair and to increase the durability of the repair. They also talk about organ transplant, so they go into kidney transplant, liver heart transplant, heart transplant and talk about how metabolic and bariatric surgery can be a risk for those transplant surgeries as well. Next, they talk about metabolic and bariatric surgery in high-risk patients. So, you know, many of us have seen this, those patients with a BMI over 60. And studies have now shown that metabolic and bariatric surgery can be performed safely in patients with a BMI even greater than 70, okay? So metabolic and bariatric surgery should be considered as a preferred method to achieve clinically significant weight loss in patients with extreme BMI. Now, of course, this is going to also depend on the surgeon and the equipment that the hospital has, but it should be considered, uh, which is great to know that there's science and research supporting this and backing that up. They also talk about cirrhosis. So they say that the patient with obesity and compensated cirrhosis is at greater risk for perioperative mortality following metabolic and bariatric surgery, but that the risk remains small, less than 1%, and that the benefits are very significant. Therefore, careful patient selection and consideration of choice of the surgical procedure are important to ensure the best outcomes. But again, this is not a contraindication for surgery. As science has shown, the research has shown that this can be done safely. They also talk about heart failure. So there's increasing data to suggest that metabolic and bariatric surgery can be a useful adjunct to treatment in patients with obesity and heart failure before heart transplantation or placement of an LVAD and can be performed with low morbidity and mortality. So that is great information as well. I know that I've had LVAT patients who I was treating with medical obesity treatment uh, because we weren't sure if they would be a good surgical candidate. So it's great to know that there is uh, research and studies to, to support the safety and efficacy in these high-risk patients. Next, they talk about patient evaluation. And so for many of us, we know that a lot of the insurances require a preoperative weight loss or medical weight management for three to six months uh, to try to lose weight prior to bariatric surgery. surgery. And so they say here in this report that there are no data to support the practice of insurance mandated preoperative weight loss, and that this practice is understood to be discriminatory, arbitrary, and scientifically unfounded, contributing to patient attrition, unnecessary delay of life-saving treatment, and progression of life-threatening comorbid conditions. All right, so strong statement against this idea. They do say that, of course, a multidisciplinary team can help assess and manage the patient's modifiable risk factors with the goal of reducing the risk of perioperative complications and improving outcomes. And ultimately, the decision for surgical readiness should be primarily determined by the surgeon. But again, this idea that people need to try to lose weight before they can have bariatric surgery... I think is one that we need to throw out the window, and that is suggested by this report, actually quite, quite strongly stated by this report as well. They also talk about cancer. So they now that we have new studies about cancer and bariatric surgery, they say that there is evidence to suggest that metabolic and bariatric surgery can lead to a significant reduction in the incidence of obesity-associated cancer and cancer-related mortality, compared compared to individuals with obesity who did not undergo surgery. Multiple studies have shown that metabolic and bariatric surgery reduces the risk of developing cancer in the populations with class 2 or class 3 obesity, ranging from 11 to 50% reduction for all cancer types. And they also note that adults with obesity who underwent metabolic and bariatric surgery had a 32% lower risk of developing cancer and a 48% lower risk of cancer-related death compared with a matched cohort who did not have surgery. So very significant uh, reductions in cancer rates with metabolic and bariatric surgery. And lastly, they talk about mortality, and they say that in a large meta-analysis with uh, over 170,000 subjects, the median life expectancy was increased by 6.1 years after metabolic and bariatric surgery compared to usual care. That's a long time. That's many years of life lived, right? And the median life expectancy is increased even more In the population with diabetes. So, definitely, you know, very significant impacts, not just on quality of life, on disease treatment and prevention, but really, you know, those years of life lost to obesity, uh, really significant difference. And lastly, they talk about that the perioperative mortality of metabolic and bariatric surgery has, of course, significantly improved over the last 30 years and is very low, ranging between. 0.03% and 0.2%, which is actually much lower than many of the other commonly performed surgeries. And yet still, bariatric surgery, only 1% to 2% of people who qualify for surgery are having this surgery, and there's still this perceived risk that, that these are very high risk surgeries, which certainly, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago maybe uh, was the case, but now these are very safe and effective surgeries. So for a link to this guideline, please check out this note, the show notes. I'll have the link of the article in there if you want to read and get more references and look more in depth. And I will see you all back next week for another amazing interview. Next week, we will be airing our interview with Chris and Christy Gallagher. And it's all about obesity advocacy, and you will not want to miss that one. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gaining Health podcast. Don't forget to review and subscribe. And if you really liked it, consider supporting us on Patreon. Lastly, if you need resources and tools to help you start an obesity management program, be sure to check out gaininghealth.com. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Gaining Health Podcast.